Welcome to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is a scientist, engineer and doctor by trade, but for decades he's been firing up people's curiosity for science by sharing his passion for it as a science communicator via all forms of media. While he may have turned to radio in the early 80s as part of paying his way through a medical degree, his talent was soon in high demand, leading to his first TV gig in 85 as the presenter of Quantum, then stints as a science reporter for the Midday Show, Good Morning Australia, The Today Show and Sunrise, just to name a few. In 2019, he became the first ever Australian to receive UNESCO's Kalinga Prize for the popularisation of science, joining the ranks of legends such as Sir David Attenborough and David Suzuki. He's also the author of dozens of science books and now he's tackling one of the most contentious scientific issues of our times, climate change, with the release of his new book, Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science. How are you, Doctor? Dr. Laura, thank you awfully. You're very kind. I'm I'm not worthy, but thank you. (laughs) You are worthy. Now, does it annoy you that we even have to use the word contentious in the same sentence as climate change? Well, it annoys me in the sense that it's going to get very expensive right now and for our children, but it's exactly what you would expect from a three decades long massive disinformation campaign run by big fossil fuel. And you say, oh, come on, Carl, now surely big fossil fuel wouldn't tell lies. Okay, Uh, big tobacco has been telling lies for the best part of a century. And in 2018, big alcohol told lies in every hospital in Australia when, in August, a huge poster, not A3 or A2 but, or A1, but A0, a huge poster appeared in every hospital in Australia with the picture of a pregnant belly and, on top of the words, it is not known if drinking alcohol by a pregnant mother is dangerous to the health of the unborn baby. And that is a 100% lie, and we've known that that's a lie, that that's incorrect, for decades. Now, when Big Alcohol put that poster in every hospital in Australia in August 2018, they weren't specifically trying to get a spike in the birth of mentally retarded, malformed babies. Really, instead, they knew that there was this bunch of people called pregnant women who, for whatever reason, were refusing to drink alcohol, and that was cutting into their profits. And so they decided they would tell these people, pregnant women, lies. Um, Nothing personal, it was just business. And the same situation with big fossil fuel, spending a billion dollars a year for 30 years. Mate, you get results after spending a billion dollars a year for 30 years. Wow. That's a really good way of putting it. You describe yourself as an eternal optimist, though, and we read that in your new book. Is it hard to stay optimistic when stuff like this is going on? Oh, yeah, because it's quite clear that with today's science and technology, we can stop and even reverse global warming and bring temperatures and carbon dioxide levels back to what they were in the 20th century. Because we've got a really good example when back in 1985, the scientists said, hey, there's an ozone layer, it's being damaged by chemicals called CFCs. They'd spent decades on it and finally they proved it in 1985. Within two years, all of the governments of the world got together and they passed the Montreal Protocol, which banned these chemicals. And the chemical company said, oh, there's no possible alternative. Okay, there is. And and so they fixed it. And so the ozone hole is coming back. 
Unfortunately, well, fortunately for us, the ozone-destroying chemical companies, they did not have a budget of a billion dollars a year, whereas big fossil fuel does. So, for example, when the head of Exxon retired a few years ago, he walked out with $400 million as a bonus. Well, how did the everyday Australian unwittingly consume that campaign by big fossil fuel? Well, in three of the states in Australia, Queensland, South Australia and um, Tasmania, the only newspaper in each capital city is a Murdoch newspaper and they are very much climate change deniers, giving equal time to the climate change argument as the argument against it, except the argument for climate change is on page 55 at the bottom, whereas the argument against climate change is on page one. And interestingly, they never give the argument against the earth being flat equal time. Only climate science, that, you know, metallurgy, um, geology, they're all fine with those sciences. The only science that bothers them is that one. And it's costing each Australian roughly $2,000 a year. So if you've got a child, your child paid to the fossil fuel companies that much money. If you look at the whole world of all of the money that was generated in revenue by every government in the world put together, they then turned around and gave 8% of that to the fossil fuel companies, not as an investment, but as a subsidy. And that's more than the military budget. And then on top of that, um, when the, you read the International Monetary, Repun, Monetary Fund report of 2019, they say that this subsidising fossil fuels in the short term has been bad for the economy. It's actually bad for the economy to subsidise them in the short term and the long term, medium term or even worse again. So the solution is quite easy. Uh, unfortunately, it's a little bit illegal. The um, legal situation, uh, way to solve it is just to vote in different politicians because the ones that we've got have been, how shall we put it, distracted by a billion dollars a year. The illegal one which I'm not going to say because I didn't even say it, is that we simply bribe the politicians. They're so cheap in Australia. I didn't even say that, though. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. <laughs> right. Just on something that you said before in terms of where we place this, say, in a newspaper, page 55 versus page one, in terms of, I mean, I think we're of the belief in Australia there are more climate change deniers than there really are. Can you expand on the stats around that? The uh, percentage of active climate change deniers who have gone into it and for whatever reason actively believe it and, and push for it is 10% in the USA and 8% in Australia, but they get a lot of amplification and noise from various parts of the press, such as the Murdoch press. And watch Sky TV any night after five o'clock and you'll just hear it over and over again. The fact that it's scientifically incorrect is totally irrelevant in the same way that big alcohol ignored that drinking alcohol by pregnant mothers is dangerous to their unborn babies. The population believes scientists on most things. You, my, my, um, you know, the way I think is, well, you can't really argue with science. Is it money? Is that why there are people who will argue with this? You get a lot of traction for a billion dollars a year. And also it's the way that this strange new thing called social media works. So if you've got one person saying something on Facebook, say Laura, and then I repost that, me, Carl, there's, it's really coming out from Carl. And so you lose the original person who did the posting. And on Facebook, 
if you look, and this is American figures, if you look at all of the anti-vaccination posts on Facebook, 12 people are responsible for 75% of them. 12 people who then just get reposted and reposted. And you think, oh, it came from there, it came from somebody else, it must be true. But it doesn't matter if you still say that two and two is five, it doesn't matter how many people say it, it's still wrong. Mm. There was a certain gentleman who used to be the leader of the free world who might have been quite good at telling his followers that two and two is five. Was that man, Mr. Trump, um, instrumental in furthering the campaign of denial? He was part of the package of where truth does not matter. And we're all subject to that. You are, I am. And so, for example, um, you might want to go and buy a new fridge. And so you go looking up the various reports about it. And then somebody in your family, extended family that you want to meet for Easter says, oh, the blah, blah is really good. And somebody else says, yeah, that's really good. And even though it might not be that good, because they're family, because they're tribe, you tend to go with them. We are very tribal creatures. And so in America, various beliefs go along tribal values. So if you're Republican, then 49% of those people who are Republicans will not get the vaccine. That's the one for COVID-19. So have they read the science? No, they're just following the tribal values. And look, it happens to me. If my daughter says something, I'll believe her. Same with my wife. Yeah, I can absolutely understand. It's like asking your friend for advice on something when you could go to an encyclopedia, you probably would listen to them more. <laughs> how, right. how hard is it, Dr. Carl, to convince the everyday Australian, or, or not convince, but how hard is it to explain the to the everyday Australian the science behind climate change and have them understand? Ah, that's a very deep question there, Dr. Laura. And let me introduce you to something that you may or may not have heard of, the BAF or the bulldust, that's a polite word, asymmetry factor. Uh, the bulldust asymmetry factor. And the basic principle is that it takes at least 10 times longer to debunk a lie than to say it. Let me give an example. I am now going to say something wrong about climate change. And here we go in three. We've always had climate change and the climate is always changing and there's nothing natural. Anyway, it's good for the environment. That took seven seconds. To debunk that takes about 15 minutes so that means that the BAF is about 120. So to understand that, you have to know that, yes, the normal state of affairs on planet Earth for the last three million years is an ice age. We get 100,000 years of ice age and then only 20,000 years of not ice age, then 100,000 years of ice age, and so it goes backwards and forwards. So then you've got to understand that that is caused by something called the Milankovitch effect, where the orbit of the Earth changes as it goes around the sun in three different ways. The orbit goes more elliptical, more circular, number one. Number two, the tilt of the Earth varies between 25 and a half and 21 and a half degrees. At the moment, it's 23 and a half. Thirdly, the actual tilt of the Earth sweeps out a circle called precession once every 24,000 years. So that explains the why we've had ice ages over the last three million years. But then to explain why they're 150 million years apart, you've then got to look at the galaxy and realize that the solar system, as it goes around the center of the galaxy, doesn't go around dead flat in line with the center of the galaxy, but bobs up and down and goes through an, uh, a dust cloud. And suddenly, mate, I've used up more than seven seconds and I, I haven't finished explaining why the 
climate always naturally changes. Haven't even gone into the fact that carbon dioxide acts like a one-way valve. The BAF is rich in these uh, climate denialists. Yes, it's probably more comfortable for people to go, oh, well, that you know, that's easier to digest than uh, a bigger explanation. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And in these challenging times, Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. More with Dr Carl in just a moment. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is Dr. Carl Kruselnitsky. Now, Dr. Carl, um, your new book, Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science is out now. And you've said in that book that the only thing stopping us from fixing climate change is the billion dollars and more spent by the fossil fuel industry every year on deliberate disinformation. Are you saying we don't actually need any mass breakthroughs in science it's it's more fighting that force than what's right. going on in the earth itself surprisingly we can bring our carbon emissions to virtually zero within about 10 to 15 years using the science and technology we have today and there will be better technologies in the future and then Besides just simply reducing our emissions to virtually zero, we can make them go negative and pull carbon dioxide out of the air. And there's a lovely article in the January 2019 issue of the Scientific American, pages 54 onwards, uh, it's only six pages, and it describes a whole bunch of technologies ranging from fully biological to fully military industrial for pulling carbon dioxide out there. So the fully biological is something like grow trees, grow kelp, biochar, all the way up to something like Climateworks, C-L-I-M-E-W-O-R-K-S, who have built these machines that just with electricity pull carbon dioxide out there. And if you built 40 million of these machines once, then for every, every year afterwards, they'd be able to pull out a human, all of our human annual emissions. Um, and the number of machines you would need would be 40 million, which sounds impossibly large, but we make 80 million new cars every year. And cars are far more complex than these brute, simple, grunty machines. So there's nothing stopping us in the same way that there was nothing stopping the world from saving the ozone hole. And we went down that pathway. We can do it with today's technology. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people I know might say, oh, well, you know, by the time it's really bad, there'll be the technology to fix. Everything's going to be okay. Do you think we are a little too complacent in that regard? I mean, you say that we have the science now, but there's a lot of people that think, well, I don't need to do anything. Science will fix it. Well, in Victoria, when we had the terrible bushfires, that um, killed about 140 people or so. On that same weekend, the Black Saturday, Black Sunday, I forget which, uh, we had 173 people die of heat stroke. And the only way we knew that they died of heat stroke was because they, they don't show, you see, signs on their body like burns or blisters. The way we noticed that there were too many people dying of heat stroke was in that area, all the morgues and the universities and private mortuaries 
were full. And they had to start shifting out bodies in refrigerator trucks. In Paris, they had, when they had the big heat wave across Europe that killed 60,000 people, they had to store bodies in ice cream trucks. 70,000 people died in that heat wave. So we're already seeing that. Last year, on the 4th of January, the hottest place on the entire planet was Sydney, with a temperature of 48.9, just under 50. And last year, we had one-fifth of all the forests in Australia burn. And then just recently, we've had this massive storm off the East Coast, which is made worse by global warming. And one day's spillover of water from Warragamba Dam was roughly equal to the entire consumption by everybody in the Sydney Basin for an entire year. We're all, and we're heading towards the Great Barrier Reef shutting down. Now, the Great Barrier Reef is worth some 5 to $10 billion in tourism, plus all the other follow-on effects, you know, the indirect tourism, and we're just wiping it out. And then we've got the world's greatest kelp forest, the Great Southern Reef, going from the... It's underwater. 70% of Australians live within 50 kilometres of this, the world's greatest kelp forest, and they don't know it. And it goes all the way from the mid-coast, middle of Western Australia, across the bottom, across to the right-hand side, up to Broome. And that supports $10 billion worth of fish, that, that kelp, and also um, some $35 billion in other tourism. And thanks to global warming in Tasmania, off the coast of Tasmania, where we've measured it, we've lost 95% of it. And so we're already seeing the effects. It's happening now, it's just gonna get more expensive. And the sooner we start doing something about it, it'll be better because it actually turns out to be cheaper. Now don't tell some of the people from Sky TV, but when you're making electricity, if the fuel is free, it's actually cheaper than if you have to pay for the fuel. This is a big secret, don't tell them. And we're just developing the different technologies to go along with our new future. But the Australian government, seems to be remarkably unwilling to accept the science of climate change. And I do believe that people of very high political level have lovingly carried lumps of coal into the Australian Parliament, which is illegal under the sitting orders, and have stroked them for the cameras which were warned to do that. So we just need new politicians. And, and that's the only easy cure, different politicians. Now, taking a different uh, direction, Dr. Carl, I want to know about you. You came to Australia too, am I right? You wouldn't remember arriving in Australia, but what are your first memories? Uh, my first memory was in Sweden uh, when I was a little baby and my mother was carrying me and the sky was black and the ground was white. So apparently we were in Stockholm and it was snowing and she carried me down these steps and suddenly this enormous noisy machine came at us, which was a subway, and then that was it. I got 30 seconds of memory and then it's pretty well a blank, except when I was growing up in the refugee camp, I remember noticing after a while as a little kid, and this is on the border of New South Wales, Victoria, at Albury, Wodonga, I remember noticing that my parents would give me the egg. They wouldn't keep it for themselves. And that's what parents do. If they got any food, they give it to the children rather than themselves. And so uh, that's my only mem uh, memory. Then I went to Little Flower Public School in Wollongong, uh, where I was in a minority being from Eastern Europe background, and then uh, to high school and then university. I've, I've actually been very lucky, Dr. Laura. I grew up at a time when the Australian government thought that education was a worthwhile investment in the future. And so I've had 28 years of education essentially for free, including 16 years at university essentially for free. Wow. And here's a surprising thing. It is cheaper 
in the cities of Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane to put somebody in a five-star hotel and then pay for their university fees or TAFE fees than it is to keep them in jail. It's cheaper to put them in a hotel than it is to keep them in jail. Ah, what a crazy world we live in. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Your, and your parents that, that you talked about there that, that, that gave you the egg um, in the refugee camp, that's such a beautiful story. They've got fascinating stories behind them too, don't they? I know that your dad was turned into the Gestapo for smuggling Jews out of Poland and escaped a concentration camp um, himself. I mean, that in its, just that story is just unbelievable. I'm sure he... Did he talk to you about that? Yeah, but I was an idiot and didn't ask him about it. And when he tried to bring it up, I wouldn't talk to him about it because I was a teenage idiot. And now I regret it deeply. Um, But he escaped uh, being executed, killed three times. Once in Ukraine, um, he was on a train set to go to Siberia. He'd been convicted of being uh, bad and he was going to be sent there to die in Siberia. And the guards looked the other way and he ran. The second time was when he was trying to get through Lithuania, Latvia into England and he got turned into the Gestapo there. And luckily, he was in a concentration, he was in a jail, a German Nazi jail, on the night that Russia declared war on Germany. And they bombed the wall of the jail and he escaped. And then the third time was in the concentration camp at Sachsenhausen, where he bribed his way to freedom with a tin of sardines that he carried with him hidden. Um, His one thing. And then my mother, she got around it by just simply lying. So she told me that she was Swedish and Lutheran and had nothing to do with the war, whereas she was Jewish, had nearly been killed herself, uh, and she just lied. She even lied to, about her date of birth, and just just because it was her only way to survive. I mean, people do that when they've been through terrible things. You and I have got no idea of what it's like to have people shooting at us. Well, you might, but I don't. No, 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 I don't. I, I certainly don't. <laughs> I remember doing the Kokoda track years ago for work and catching myself, you know, complaining to myself about how hard it was to get up the hills and then suddenly going, my God, imagine doing this with bullets flying out of the jungle and it's so dark, can't see where they're coming from. You know, we, we have nothing to complain about, do we, in terms of those who came before us. Um, Doctor, I know that, um, was it the Wollongong Library that, that you spent a lot of your childhood and that sort of um, those who worked there really helped you as a young boy uh, foster what you were interested in in terms of science and reading? I love libraries. They're a light of knowledge in the darkness and they still exist in this internet world. All we need to do is teach people how to search for reliable information. And so when I was a kid, I started reading at an early age and then blow me down, I discovered that the Wollongong Library in the kids section had this section of all the fairy stories of the whole of the whole world. Oh my God. And so I was at the Wollongong Library as a young kid and I realized that in the kids section, they had this huge section just on fairy tales of the world. And there were about 150 countries and I read them ravenously. And it was really amazing how there were similarities and differences and you could see a pattern. And I was astonished by this. And then I came across a book called Thunderbolt of the Spaceways. And it was kind of like a fairy tale, but it was science fiction. I didn't know what science fiction was. And that was it, mate. I was hooked. I was into science fiction then. And from when I was about 
12 to when I was about 30 or so, I read one science fiction book every day of my life, not book but story, until I started studying medicine. And then the body of knowledge that I had to absorb in medicine was so great, I couldn't waste a whole hour, but I started getting back into science fiction again. I loved Wollongong Library. Hello, Wollongong Library. Shout out. I love you to pieces. And all libraries around Australia, you are the light in the darkness. Beautiful. I really hope that they're listening there at Wollongong Library tonight. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers now offer fully live-streamed services so that anyone who cannot attend the funeral of a loved one can still view the service and participate. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au and more with Australia's favourite science communicator and author of Dr Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science, up next. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm going to put that hard-boiled egg into this milk bottle. A bit of burning paper in the milk bottle, egg on top, watch it, in it goes. Atmospheric pressure does the work. So too, Cadbury does the work. They put all the goodness of a glass and a half of full cream dairy milk into every 200-gram block of this chocolate. Only Cadbury gives you the goodness of that famous glass and a half. That's why I say, when you think of chocolate, think of Cadbury. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We just heard a classic Cadbury ad from the 80s featuring the famous scientist Dr Julia Sumner Miller sucking an egg into a milk bottle, possibly one of the most memorable uses of science in advertising for many of us. Our guest tonight is Dr Karl Krasniewski, who is currently the Julius Sumner Miller, a fellow at the University of Sydney. Now, Dr Karl, do you remember that ad? I, I love that ad. It was so simple and elegant. And if you look back at it, back at it he says very carefully, um, milk is good for you. There's milk in chocolate, so over to you. Um, and he was very carefully playing with the advertisers, but he knew the importance of sponsorship. And he inspired so many people, including me. I can well imagine. Was he an influence on you as a young scientist as well? Um, he was invisibly there in the background. So on one hand, I've had very many influences from so many different people. But on the other hand, the amount of direction that I've put into my life has been remarkably little, I'm sorry to say, which is really slack. And I've kind of been like a paddle pop stick in the gutter of life on a rainy day. And the currents washed me this way and they washed (laughs) me that way. And I just sort of go with the currents, unless they're really not what I want to do. But I just tend to go with the flow um, and enjoy the ride. In fact, it's funny, when you think about life in general, in a way, it's kind of like a roller coaster. So you end up where you started, but it's the ride in between that's really the important thing. You've got to have a great ride. And so I've always tried to have a good ride through life. That's a, a wonderful way of looking at it. Was it an honour for you to be announced as the Julia Sumner Fellow at the University of Sydney? Did that Was that a big moment for you? It was really weird. They actually asked me if I could... Um, you know, mention, put forward, nominate anybody who would be suitable for the position. And I thought, no, I've got no idea. And then they said, how about you? Why don't you apply for a dummy? Oh, okay. So I I was that unaware of what was going on around me. Right. 
<laughs> you have so many accolades, though, Dr. Carl. You uh, were named a National Living Treasure in 2012, a member of the Order of Australia in 2006. You won an Ig Nobel Prize for your research into belly button fluff and why it is always blue in uh, 2002. Amazing recognition. Aside from all that, why is it always blue? Because it's made up of fibres of clothing held together by dead skin cells mm. and the fibres of clothing are shaken loose out of your clothes, more so with a top loader washing machine, less so with a front loader because a top loader can either be gentle or thorough but not both, whereas a front loader can be both. So if you've got a top loader, you're more likely to shake through the fibres that then get caught up with dead skin cells. And why is it blue? Because the average colour that humans wear is blue. Now, some of us wear red singlets. Well, if you go to the trouble of wearing everything red, red underwear, red tops, and then red trousers and, and shirt and so forth, you will, and I've done the experiment, briefly generate red belly button fluff. But if you walk out in the street, the overwhelming colour is shades of blue. And there is no black dye for people who wear black clothing. It's a mixture of a dark green dye and a dark blue dye. Mm, fascinating. I thought you were going to say because the detergent we use is always dyed blue in the washing machine, but there you go, it's the average colour of our clothing. The way that it all started was that I was on a radio show and somebody rang in and said, why is belly button fluff blue? And I just gave the honest answer, I have no idea. So I went looking through the medical literature and all I could find was some report in the British Medical Journal in the Christmas issue saying that in the same way that all roads lead to Rome, then all the hairs on your tummy lead to the belly button, and that was it. That's all it said. And so I gave this answer on the radio station next week, and then um, about three months later, somebody rang in and said, G'day, I'm Doug. He was Doug from the Soft Bottom Research Centre, which is not people who go around poking people in the buttocks to see if they've got hard or soft bottoms, but rather uh, a marine scientist who looked at fish growing on soft, sandy bottoms as opposed to hard, rocky bottoms. And he had lots of belly button fluff uh -huh. and a hairy abdomen, so he shaved good on him, a 10 centimetre circle around his belly button and then suddenly the production of belly button fluff dropped to zero and then as the hair grew back, then the production of belly button fluff then increased. So this inspired me to do a survey, which I did at my own expense. And on average, um, two thirds of people have belly button fluff and the prime generator of belly button fluff is a slightly overweight middle-aged male with a hairy abdomen. But there was a case of a teenage female who was very skinny and hairless on the abdomen, but nevertheless had belly button fluff, but only while she was wearing very tight T-shirts. When she started yeah, putting a ring in her navel, the belly button fluff couldn't make it past that little lifted up area. So the navel ring in her belly button acted like a little tent pole holding up the T-shirt and the belly button fluff couldn't make it the last way across. Then I called for samples of belly button fluff from around Australia and the world, knowing even so that it was dangerous because there was a case of a young woman, uh, we got this out of the survey, who was going out for the night in the then popular midriff exposing outfit when her brother said, hey sis, um, you've got some belly button fluff, whereupon she immediately went to the bathroom and then picked out with her fingernail and then, wait for it, used not hers, but his 
electric toothbrush to clean her belly button, and then he came down with the worst oh. ever case of a fungal infection of the mouth that he'd ever had, thus proving that belly button fluff is a potential nuclear-grade biohazard. Even so, we got samples and took photographs of it, and here's some very important advice for anybody who wants a career in science. Anything, remember this, this is very important, anything, no matter how boring, always looks better when you take it a photograph with an electron microscope. So we used an electron microscope and we found that belly button fluff was made of um, little fibres of clothing, usually blue, joined together by dead skin cells. And Harvard University offered to give me an Ig Nobel Prize and they showed me so much respect that with regard to the flights and the accommodation, they let me pay for all my own flights and accommodation because they didn't want to insult me by offering me money. That's how prestigious the Ig Nobel Prize is. And the actual prize is actually uh, a set of red wind-up teeth on a stick that you wind up with a little key and written in text colour with a spelling error is 2002 Ig Nobel Prize uh, and it was misspelled. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that is, that is such an incredible... That's hilarious. That is a great story. Thank you, Dr Carl. I want to know... With all of those um, accolades that you receive and National Living Treasure, uh, National Living Treasure, the Ig Nobel, um, Order of Australia, do all the kids who bullied you at school, do you hope that they're reading and watching what's going on now for you? No, I'm, I'm just hoping that they're better people and that they're being, just a little they're, bit. they're passing it on <laughs> to their kids because if you grow up in a science or medical family, there's a real pressure in your daily job to always stick to the truth. But there are other careers where your job is to trick people and then the kids can grow up with a lax appreciation of the truth and then you can hear the adults saying, you lied to me, and you think you're an 11 year old kid, you're just following the example of your parents. So I'm hoping that things have got mm, better for the next generation. Do, and usually things do. After all, we are living, yeah. the, the kids today are the yeah. smartest generation ever in the history of the human race. Obviously you'd hope that the kids of this generation are reading the book that you have out now and perhaps maybe working to change the minds of their parents or grandparents who might not um, believe what's in your book? Um, so long as it's factually correct, there have been mistakes in each of my previous books. There almost certainly will be one or two minor mistakes, but the big picture that we cause global warming and that we can reverse it, that's undeniable. Um, and I'm hoping that it will help because the kids are movers for change. I remember seeing kids in the street saying to their parents, as they walked, as the parents walked down the street smoking, and the kids were being brought home from school by their parents, and the kids were saying, "Mummy, Daddy, please don't smoke because it means that you'll die sooner, and I love you, and I don't want you to die." And so that's why we've got the situation in Australia that hardly anybody smokes. And when you go to Europe or America, mate, they're like chimneys. Oh yeah, it's it's like going back in a time machine, isn't it? When you go to places, some places in Europe. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And our guest tonight has been Dr. Carl Krasinski, and plenty more in just a moment.
Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Our guest tonight is Australia's most loved science communicator and author, Dr. Carl Krusenitsky, science communicator and lover of loud and colourful shirts. Now, this is radio, Dr. Carl, uh, but we are talking to each other via um, Microsoft Teams right now. I can see that you do have a shirt on that um, is eye-grabbing. Where do what does your wardrobe look like? Is it just is it an, is, is is it an assault on the eyeball when you open the wardrobe door? <laughs> it's all the colours of the rainbow. There are some people who I think wrongly think that when you dress with colours, you should all pick just one colour and just different shades of that colour from one tiny part of the entire rainbow spectrum. Me, everything all at once. Just wear everything really bright. And I remember when I was a kid in Wollongong and I was walking down. Crown Street and it was a really rainy day and everybody was wearing dark colours and everybody was really sort of grumpy, grumpy, grumpy and then suddenly the crowd opened I could see this woman wearing bright clothes and the people after she'd gone past weren't so grumpy and I kept and I followed her mm. uh, and I noticed that they were actually uh, looking happier after she'd gone past and I thought what's not to like so I've, I've always worn bright colors that was my justification i liked it anyway but i wanted some sort of scientific justification my wife makes all my shirts it takes us three hours with a four thread overlocker which does 80 percent of the work and uh, a standard sewing machine which does the remaining 20 percent and uh, people who know how to make clothes properly because she's um, an amateur she just does this for fun reckon that that's very impressive because a shirt is and they use the word very technical to make so she can whip out a shirt and I've got mm. a library of about 40 or 50 shirts which as they get faded get turned into rags and recycled out because I wear them as stage clothing I learned this from when I was a roadie for Bo Diddley you got to look good when you're on stage and so that's why I'm all dressed up now even though I'm talking to a microphone I'm still dressed up because I'm putting myself in the right mindset and, and my wife uh, I, as a Christmas present yeah. I bought her uh, some little velvet labels which say House of Mary with two little love hearts uh, and, and a few more love hearts on the side as well so they're on all my shirts now oh. when she remembers and I also get two pockets and Dr. long sleeves Carl, and sometimes I get a little sewing thing down one pocket for holding a pen in place perfect little pockets for you that is beautiful what a wonderful wife uh, Mary is to you I'm a very lucky boy that she makes my shirts for me I've just been incredibly lucky and I'm still lucky today I don't know why sometimes you're lucky I guess um, Dr. Carl, you applied to NASA once but weren't successful. Is it still on the list? Would you still like to get there someday? Ah, uh, yes, I did in 1981 write a letter to NASA saying, Hi, NASA, I've got a degree in physics and maths and I've got an engineering degree when I designed and built a machine for Fred Hollows to pick up electrical signals off the human retina to diagnose certain types of eye diseases and I'm about to get degrees in medicine and surgery and I'm a young bloke and I'm pretty fit, can I be an astronaut? And they wrote me a letter back on a typewriter I've still got the letter and it said look we're all full up and anyway we only employ Americans and it was signed by a human with ink out of a pen oh my god I've still got that letter uh, would I go back in a way wow. back then as a single person I would but very rapidly it became aware, uh, obvious that the space shuttle was very dangerous one in every 70 times that it tried to go into mm. space everybody died it blew up Right. And I, I was kind of 
I'm not particularly happy with those odds, uh, but as a single bloke, and, and, and going to space is so good, I'd probably do it. But, you know, uh, as a person with a family, probably not, but they've got to get space travel more safe, and they're, they're working on that. Good explanation. Good on you, Dr. Carl. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Carl's little book of climate change science is in store now via HarperCollins. And if you've enjoyed our chat with Dr. Carl and you'd like to share it with a friend, subscribe to the Great Australian Lives podcast. And of course, join me the same time next week when we celebrate another Great Australian Lives. This is Great Australian Lives, the Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. 